Welcome to TW Now. I'm Scott Winnale. The Middle East has been a military and cultural hotspot for millennia, for thousands of years. And for the last 70 years since Israel took possession of Jerusalem, tempers have flared and fighting has continued. Today, Iran and even Russia have moved into Syria on Israel's border. The Palestinian conflict continues with almost weekly raids and bombings. And we continue to be told about a two-state solution. Israel has a highly advanced military and apparently even nuclear weapons. Many nations want to control Jerusalem and now even the sea off the coast of Israel where there's oil. Will there be a war in the Middle East? If so, when will it happen? Our returning guests today will shed light onto these nagging questions and will provide answers where few have them today. I'd like to introduce to you again Mr. Dexter Wakefield. Mr. Wakefield is a minister and a longtime student of geopolitics in the Middle East. He's also a writer who has written on the future of Jerusalem and the Middle East. Mr. Wyatt Saselka is also a minister, a former university faculty member. He too has written about and studied the Middle East and has studied on the impact of Islam in particular. Gentlemen, welcome back to both of you. Thank you. <clears throat> By the way, to our audience, if you have any questions that come along during our discussion, please feel free to message us and we'll do our best to address some of your questions during the show today. Well, let's get started, gentlemen. As we begin, I think it's important to probably let our audience know and get all on the same page and talk about what is the Middle East? What nations comprise the Middle East? Mr. Wakefield. Well, there's a whole group of them, of course. Uh, the Saudi Arabia, um, Oman, Jordan, Iran, Iraq, uh, Syria, Israel is there, Egypt, Lebanon, Turkey. We actually have a map that we can show them mm -hmm. that will give them an idea as well. You know, I, I like to think about it, though, in, in terms of its history, because the uh, Ottoman Turk Empire lasted for nearly 500 years. 500 years of rule over that whole area. It, had, it was a tremendous, I think, it's reached its height around what um, 1550 in, in there with Suleiman the Magnificent who was truly magnificent in his entire empire that he had but uh, uh, when World War One broke out uh, the Turkish Empire had been in decline and the Turks made the mistake of allying themselves with the Germans in World War One they were defeated by the British, Allenby in particular, in the Middle East, and the whole thing collapsed, and they lost their empire. And the British found themselves in possession of the Middle East. So they had a mandate to try to restore the nations there, and of course they did it uh, so that they would have an advantage in ruling it and an influence there. So that's generally how the Middle Eastern nations got formed up as they are now. It's a lot more complicated than that, but it largely came out of the Ottoman Turk Empire around the 100 years ago. So, it, it, when we talk about the Middle East, it is not a homogenous um, entity. It is not uh, a, 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 an entity where all of the, uh, the the different factions agree, whether it's religiously, whether it's strategically. Uh, there are some, which we'll get into later, some some basic fundamental agreements among the Arab and, and Islamic nations, uh, for example, in their hostility in general to Israel. Now, different nations have a different level of hostility. But what you have, to follow up on what Mr. Wakefield was saying, uh, 
is I think the Balfour Declaration was 1926. Am I remembering that correctly? And there are 22 nations now that comprise the, the Arab world. Uh, but those are artificial constructs. And I think there's a map up on the, on the screen now. Um, so those are artificial nations, artificial constructs that were created after World War One, and what happened is that that we carved up peoples uh, artificially between uh, and put them in different different nations, and so you have a Sunni Shia problem. There there are other problems as well. There's tribal and ancestral claims to land. So the point I'd like to make is it's not a homogenous entity uh, by any stretch of the imagination when we talk about the Middle East. Frankly, there's even nations that we uh, know that are not really truly Arab that are considered part of the Middle East, which we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. So when you say sort of artificially put together, Iraq, I guess, would be an example of that, where you've got several different ethnic groups, for example, in Iraq. And they may or may not even be of the same um, ilk in terms of Islam, but they're pushed together in these artificial boundaries. And that's part of why we see some of the strife within, division within some of the nations in the Middle East today. Very much so. Uh, I, I, I absolutely um, <clears throat> Yemen. <clears throat> uh, we were talking about Yemen a little bit before the before the program. Yemen is one of the the most tragic uh, uh, genocides and and famines and and so forth. Um, don't want to get ahead of ourselves uh, at this time. Uh, why? Why? You have a Shia minority that lives within that artificially constructed nation and I'm not trying to be politically insensitive the the Arabs and, and the locals in the Middle East are very well aware that that this that these national boundaries were put upon them by the British and um, the British may have tried to do what was basically helpful but uh, it, it's caused problems and so in Yemen for example you have an artificially constructed territory with a Shia minority and who else would be a, a Shia uh, nation. Well, I, Iran, and so um, um, Saudi Arabia is mostly Sunni, and without getting more into the explanation, that is a reason we have such conflict in Yemen currently. Mm -hmm. And just uh, to bring out one other point, uh, typically Sunnis do not consider Shia to be true Muslims, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine what uh, tensions that brings in a place like uh, Iraq, where it's a majority, a majority Shia population ruled the, by Sunni, at least for a long time. So now the uh, Shia in, are largely in control there and trying to reconnect with Iran a little bit. But we had situations where the Sunnis were bombing huge uh, numbers of Shia constantly, several hundred a week. And some of this is still going on. This is Muslims killing Muslims. Mm -hmm. And the, it's, it's an extraordinary thing, but the slaughter is going on within Islam these days. And, and if I can uh, come back to that and, and add another aspect, uh, because there is the, the, the Sunni-Shia conflict, which we'll, we'll explore a little bit more later. But there's also um, acknowledged by those who are who live in the Middle East and by the Arabs, there is an ethnic and and uh, gene genealogical difference. Um, I mentioned there are 22 uh, nations that are considered part of the Middle East, but uh, most Arab countries and most Arab leaders and educated Arabs, and I'm looking at my notes here, would say that there are only uh, a handful of those nations that are considered uh, to be Arab people. 
regardless of the religion, regardless of, of and there's even some Arabs that are, that are Christian, um, but regardless of Sunni Shia, the Arab, the, the nations that are considered Arab, ethni, ethni, ethnically by Arabs, would include the following nations. And maybe if we could put the map back up real quickly, um, but, but, but Bahrain, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, Palestine, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, I won't go through all of them, but, but even the Arabs would, would acknowledge that many of the nations on that map are not quote-unquote Arab nations, uh, ethnically. Uh, there are big names missing from, from that list. Uh, Turkey, um, Iran, huge names that are missing. Uh, um, uh, Ethiopia. That may be religious, religiously Muslim, mm -hmm. but are not considered Arabic. Yeah. Well, and I was going to ask you too, since we're on this subject, uh, can you remind us of where a number of these Arab people have come from? You know, take us all the way back to the book of Genesis and, and make some of those connections for us. Mm -hmm. Mr. Wakefield? Uh, I, you want me to tell the story that I was telling you a little bit just, earlier? Just, sure. Okay, try to do it briefly. Uh, we had a, after the Feast of Tabernacles in Israel a few years ago, we took a little tour in Turkey. And one Sabbath I gave to our tour group there a, uh, a sermon on um, uh, Abraham and Isaac and the promises at that point. Our guide wanted to be in on the sermon. I said, oh, this fellow's a Muslim. How will he feel about it? I said, well, okay, come on in. So he did. And I gave the the study, really a, more of a Bible study. And afterwards I asked him, what did he think? And he said, we agree with everything you said. Everything you said about Abraham and Isaac and um, what happened with uh, him being killed, um, almost killed and so forth. We know all of that. But he said, we believe that, uh, the, the Muslim said that he believes that Isaac was miraculously conceived uh, because of Sarah's age, and that his the true seed of Abraham is um, Ishmael. Ishmael, of mm -hmm. course, Ishmael. And I added then, and the Jews corrupted the scriptures. And he nodded and smiled. Yes. So that's the difference, and it diverges from there. They believe that they are the people of the promise, and that Israel and the Jews are not. Mm. So. It's interesting when you talk to a Muslim. Uh, I was able to pastor in an area where we had a wonderful uh, married couple and the wife uh, is and was a Christian and her husband is and was Muslim. And, uh, it, you know, it was it was challenging for them. Uh, uh, definitely uh, not uh, something that we would probably recommend because it, it caused them issues. But, uh, you know, loving couple, mar uh, married and so forth, uh, re respected each other. Um, and we're constantly trying to kind of convert each other, but still, you know, got along. I, I hope it continues to work out. What was interesting was when I would visit occasionally with them, the husband, as Mr. Wakefield was, was mentioning, the narrative from the husband was essentially... Um, yes, we acknowledge, and my fellow Arabs and Muslims acknowledge, Abraham as our ancestor, and acknowledge that um, Ishmael uh, was one of his sons. But where we would diverge is they would see when I would go to Genesis, and I'm not going to turn to it, but Genesis chapter 15 and 16 and 17, where it talks about the covenant and so forth, they would, he would say, no, um, the Bible's been corrupted, and really the covenant 
covenant and the promises, the greater blessings to become great nation and so forth, uh, and even things dealing with the Messiah and the Mahdi, those were were promised to uh, Ishmael and through Ish, Ishmael's servants. And Ishmael's a, a, a offspring. And so of course, the Bible says it's, it was it was Isaac. Um, on that note, one one other comment: um, the Middle Eastern nations, and especially the rulership, they, they do track their lineage. The, the the kings and queens of of, of England. It, it's politically incorrect nowadays, and it's really a shame uh, that that in the United States we don't acknowledge this. But the uh, the royal house of Windsor and so forth, they track their lineage back to to King David. And people will mock that and say, "Well, that's just fairy tale." That's what they they claim. The same goes uh, holds true for the Middle East. Uh, they they track their lineage back through Ishmael and back to to Abraham. And on that note, it, it, for those who want to look this up later in their Bibles, if you turn to Genesis chapter thirty six and thirty seven, well, Genesis chapter thirty six in particular, um, God reveals that some of the descendants of Ishmael were great princes and great kings. Mm -hmm. Descendants of Ishmael, the Arab ancestors were kings and princes, according to God, mm -hmm. before Israel had kings. Mm -hmm. They were kings and princes when Israel was in captivity in Egypt. So we're not uh, putting them down. They, they were a great people, also blessed by God in many, many ways. But we would obviously disagree on, you know, who Jesus Christ really is and so forth. But I just wanted to say again that in the United States, people might laugh and say this is fable. But in the Middle East, they take this seriously and they believe it. What's fascinating is in a number of these instances, you have descendants of Abraham, Ishmael's side of the lineage, uh, pushing against, fighting against uh, Israel, which is of the other side, um, the Isaac side of the lineage. And so you've actually still got brothers against brothers in many cases mm -hmm. in that region where it has been that way for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. I've got a, a, another question to ask you that relates specifically to what is happening in the Middle East today. Can you shed some light on some of the pivotal events that are now happening in the Middle East, things that we need to be watching for and be aware of? Well, um, of course, we have the the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that is an extremely complex thing. Uh, I think, really, often these complex things can have very simple underlying principles there. The underlying principle there is that the Palestinians want Israel and the Jews out, and the, Israel, the Israelis and the Jews want to stay. And until that changes, there's going to be a conflict, and it becomes really a, a matter of power. Right now, the primary conflict is between Gaza, which is Hamas. The Israelis gave um, the Gaza Strip um, their uh, autonomous rule there, and so they promptly elected Hamas, which is dedicated to the destruction of Israel, which is <laughs> Oh my. And so they had this ongoing conflict and recently they were exchanging rockets and just this in the past week or so all of this was going on. People killed. Um, it is an ongoing conflict on the borders of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm interested, <clears throat> and uh, we were talking about this as well, in Saudi Arabia's um, 
concern about Iran's nuclear program. That's a tremendous, of tremendous geopolitical concern. Uh, Saudi Arabia has the the money, the the they they have the technology, or they can acquire the technology. And uh, if if Iran, if Saudi Arabia were to feel that Iran were going to become, you know, somewhat out of control, um, the Saudis there could be an arms race, and. Um, Obviously, a nuclear, arms a, a nuclear arms race, and there are. Um, I'm looking at, a, at an article here, but anyways, within the last few months, the, the more noise has, has been about uh, the Saudis threatening that they may have no choice but to to create a nuclear weapons program. Mm -hmm. The the Iranians were uh, producing uh, enriched uranium that could be brought up to the point of making nuclear weapons with it. They brought up some of it to a 20 percent. I think um, uh, threshold. Once you get there, uh, anything under that can be used for uh, nuclear power. But anything above that, and it's easy to bring it all the way up to the 90-95% that's usable for nuclear weapons, a, a um, uranium bomb. And that's got everyone worried. So the Obama administration's made this deal with them that delayed it for at least 10 years. Uh, the trouble with the deal, of course, is it has a very weak inspection regime and extremists are in control over there. So that scared the living daylights out of the Saudis, and they should be afraid because they are mortal enemies between those two nations. So the Saudis are now saying, well, we've got to have it. If 10 or 15 years from now they're going to have nuclear weapons and the rockets to deliver them, we have to have that capability too. And it's just as Mr. Sicilka said, they're off in a nuclear arms race, and it's beginning now. The Crown Prince, uh, Saudi, Saudi Crown Prince, they call him MBS on the news. Mohammed bin Salman is, is his name, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, he is uh, admittedly and, and uh, unabashedly uh, very concerned uh, about Iran, and uh, he's considered very hawkish and very aggressive in his stance uh, toward Iran and in his willingness to align Saudi Arabia with Israel. Very interesting. Why would Mohammed bin Salman decide and, and, and strategically want to do that? Uh, don't all the Arabs hate the Israelis? And aren't all the Arabs, uh, um, you know, uh, determined to push Israel into the into the sea? Perhaps, but they're also looking at this other superpower, at least regional superpower, which is Iran. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Trump administration is very concerned about this. Uh, again, Saudi Arabia has the, the means, the money, the, the technology, and so forth. And they're concerned and they're threatened by Iran. They're also fighting a proxy war against Iran and Yemen, as we were talking about a minute ago. And um, if, if the, uh, not, do, could we put up that map, that, the other map at this point? Sure. Or is that too yeah, soon? That, that'll work. Just, um, just, uh, we were talking about this before the program. For our audience, if you if you see the big green blob in the middle of the uh, the screen, that is Saudi Arabia, and we can I'll save for later for you to introduce ahead, the no, different. Go ahead and you can bring but, it up now. But there's a brown uh, spot um, that that covers um, the lower part of Saudi Arabia and the the, the northern or, or western part of, yep. of, of of Yemen, and what you have there are you have Shia population, a big Shia population, and so that Shia population 
region is cross-border between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. The Saudis are dealing with a territorial problem. I mean, in the United States, we're rightfully concerned, no matter where you are in the wall, we're rightfully concerned about borders and so forth, right? Um, they have uh, a chunk of their territory that's, that's effectively ungovernable and, and being controlled and manipulated from their perspective by a, an enemy foreign national uh, you know, uh, government. Um, so anyways, we, I, I'll pause right there because I, I know we want to talk about the different Sunni Shia makeups, but, but what are some of the current news items that are happening today and, and what should we be concerned about? Um, you look at that map and um, that's a current news item where people are, are dying and starving, but there's geopolitics at play and there's a very real possibility you have a nuclear arms race and you could have nukes flying at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna make a quick just observation about the map for the audience's sake. Any of the colors that are blues and greens are Sunni nations or Sunni Sunni um, Muslims. Uh, the Shias are the browns and the reds. And so you see there's a whole lot more Sunnis all around the world, actually, than there are Shia. But that's that's where the Saudi-Iran issue comes down. You've got Sunnis against Shias. And that's a big part of the tension between those countries. About 85% of the Islamic world is Sunni. Uh, some people say it's quite a, quite a bit more. So there's about uh, 1.9 billion or somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.9 billion, 2 billion um, Muslims around the world, including in Indonesia and so forth. And uh, about 80 plus percent are Sunni. Mm -hmm. So if you are a Shia nation, you, you, know, you have reason to be minority. You're in a minority. And of course, we see the Saudis arming. They're the biggest arms buyer in the world. They're buying everything uh, that they can get their hands on and the most modern weapons, um, um, the jets, the drones, uh, all of these things, uh, the, the most modern things, the um, SAM missiles, surface-to-air missiles and so forth. They're buying all of these very defensively or possibly offensively against all of these things that are going on. So we have Arab nations fighting each other. There's this constant conflict among them, and it could explode into a much larger arena. And who are the, the historic superpowers aligning with? Russia is aligning with Syria and Iran, which are Shia, and the United States is aligning with Saudi Arabia and others, which are more Sunni. So the ability to pull in the, the, the big superpowers, uh, and frankly, we're already pulled in. Mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks ago, there were um, um, there was a Russian-U.S. Um, military uh, casualties, and it got really covered, got covered up very fast. It, it became quieted down very fast. Um, why? Because, Frank, my opinion, and I don't want to get into conspiracy stuff here, but my opinion is when you have... Um, deaths of, 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 of actual uh, Russian or U.S. military personnel caused by one, the other side, you're really close to big, big problems. And that was quieted down in the press and at the government level instantly that was quieted down. Well, it could be a lot worse very soon. The uh, the Russians are saying that they're going to attack some rebel strongholds near a place called Tenth, a base where there's a lot of U.S. soldiers mm -hmm. there. And the U.S. says, if you attack 
our positions or near our people that we will respond forcefully. The scary thing about that is, is that when the Russians and the United States get into it, they have the ability to escalate fast and very badly. When the little smaller Arab nations get into it, their limitations on what they can do with the Americans and Russians, the limitations aren't there. So I think people are very frightened that, in particularly given what's happening in Ukraine, the Russian mm -hmm. aggression there, that this whole thing is heating up and the possibility of U.S. and um, uh, Russian forces coming into armed conflict is growing and in, and in a very scary way. And I think both sides are realizing that, but they're sort of being pushed into it. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this question uh, in relation to not only what's happening geopolitically in the region, but also religiously. Where does Jerusalem fall? in all of this? How does how is Jerusalem tied to uh, what's going on between the Arab nations and also between Israel and these Arab nations? We, we, we know that Jerusalem will be the focal point at the end of the age. We know that all nations, Zechariah 14 and elsewhere, talks about Jerusalem being a, a cup of trembling and so forth. So today, currently, there are many reasons why Europe and the Middle East and the United States uh, care about Jerusalem it's, and Israel. There, there's technology development there. It, it's a it's a counterbalance. There, there's lots of reasons. Biblically, we know it's going to be the focal point where um, many nations will come together, uh, not just Arab nations. Mm -hmm. Well, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is one of the three holiest sites in all of Islam. The other one is in uh, Mecca and then Medina. Those are the three big mosques. And uh, they uh, hold that as one of their very holiest places, but it's held by Jews, so that's a natural source of conflict. We know that there's a, uh, a much larger picture there. The Muslims believe that Muhammad was taken in a night journey by the angel Gabriel to that place, and that's why it's a holy place for them. But we understand here in the church, and of course the Christian theology about this, is that that is where Christ is going to rule in the future. And it's going to be the eye of the storm. The eye of the storm. I've been in, I've lived for a couple of, three decades, four decades in South Florida, and I've been in several hurricanes, including the eye of two hurricanes. And let me tell you, it's quiet. It's quiet in the eye, but there's terrible violence going on around it, and that's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Uh, there's going to be on that Mount Moriah, that's territory that belongs to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Satan covets it. And there's going to be a big battle over that very place. Let's talk a little bit more about this from the scriptural side of things. What, what else does the Bible tell us about sort of the future of Jerusalem, but war here in the Middle East? Mm -hmm. Well, in Luke chapter 21... Uh, the Bible tells us that when uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, uh, essentially we know that the end is near. Matthew 24 goes through this as well. And um, there are people who want to claim that Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and so forth are uh, historic only in their, you know, in, in their warning. And that it, this only um, was Christ or God warning about what happened back in, you know, ancient times in the first century and so forth with the Romans. But if you read that, for any of our friends out there and um, who are listening and, and you, you get your Bible and you read Matthew 24, Luke 21, it's very clear that, that this, uh, what Christ is talking about is a time where all nations could, could, could be destroyed. And it's, it's, it also precedes his coming. It's, it's an end time 
prophecy. And so you asked about Jerusalem. Uh, what We can look for Jerusalem to be surrounded by armies. And, and let's remember that there may be some differences between the Sunni and the Shia, but they all agree on the five pillars of Islam. Uh, they all believe that Muhammad was, is, is their prophet. There, there's differences in, in, in uh, who they felt the successor should be, which we probably didn't have time to, to don't have time to go into. But um, will they um, cast aside those differences because of their hatred toward Christianity and so forth? Um, Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, and it won't just be uh, Muslims. It will also be probably other armies as well, as the Bible indicates, European armies as well. Mm-hmm. The, uh, at some point, uh, the church has long thought that the Arab nations or the or rather the Muslim nations will come together behind some sort of Mahdi. By the way, they believe that Isa, which is Jesus, is a great prophet that will join the Mahdi to defeat a false Messiah who is who is going to come. Yeah, define Mahdi real quickly, if you can. Well, that's the the um, uh, Islamic or the the Muslim. Uh, uh, prophet or person who will come back and raise Islam up and um, depending on what sex you're with, either bring peace to the world or extend Islam all around the world. Sort of a Muslim messiah? A Muslim messiah, so to speak. And Isa, Jesus, is supposed to join him in doing that. What's going to happen is, in, in the church's understanding, is that there's going to be a great power arising in Europe. He's going to have this uh, awesome person with, uh, that Satan will literally possess or deeply influence, and the mighty and his armies, they're going to square off. But at some point, they're going to the whole, at the time when this entire the world is coming into this great battle, they're going to turn and fight Jesus Christ upon his coming back. And uh, that is going to be a, uh, the great battle that we're talking about. It says God in Zechariah 14 will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. They gather at Armageddon. They come south against Jerusalem where they faced the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, so in, in Islamic eschatology, um, the, as Mr. Wakefield was saying, the Mahdi is going to uh, bring all of Islam together. Um, there is a disagreement whether he'll rule for uh, five to, it's, I think it's five to 19 years that he will rule uh, before the day of judgment. So just to reinforce for our audience what Mr. Wakefield's saying, this is Islamic teaching, that the Mahdi will be a, a, a messianic Originally, he was not a messianic figure. Originally, he was a a holy uh, figure. But anyways, he's messianic. He's considered messianic now. And uh, that he'll rule and he'll precede the day of judgment. Some uh, sects argue that he'll be a resurrected caliph. Some some argue that he's he's a caliph who never died. Whatever. But... um, you have two billion Muslims that uh, are going to get behind, or a lot of them are going to get behind some religious leader, most likely, and and they believe scripturally that that will be the Mahdi, and that will that will precede Judgment Day. They want to see the Mahdi, and they want to see uh, wars and 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 armies surrounding Jerusalem because that is what the Mahdi's purpose is, and that precedes Judgment Day and the establishment of of. Uh, Frankly, Sharia around the world and so forth. It's it's similar, you know. Frankly, in in its parallel to to what the Bible says about about Armageddon and the return of Christ. Something we have to watch for, and this is for our readers to watch, and the church has always taught this: is when the uh, sacrifices are stopped. 
that means they must begin again. And by the mm -hmm. way, this is being discussed in Israel now. Um, to, What's, to, who's going to be sacrificing? Um, that will be a group of priests that will be resanctified. Jews. Jews. Right. Yes, of course. Uh, a Jewish priest will be resanctified and they will begin the sacrifices. Once that begins, they can be stopped. And the stopping of that begins the period of the, the Great tri Tribulation, the three and a half years that comes after that point. So watch for the beginning of the sacrifices, because that means that we are certainly in final um, end times. Well, gentlemen, we are sort of out of time here. Let me just ask you this uh, sort of a final question to each of you. What, what kind of takeaway message do you want to leave the audience with as we conclude the program for today in this co whole concept of war in the Middle East? Mr. Selka, would you like to start? Um, thank you. I, I, just, I'll make it very simple. There's a lot of things we could say, but I think we can look at three big events um, in, in the news. Uh, Jesus Christ tells us to watch. We're supposed to watch. So let's not um, be overly anxious. Let's understand that, that God is all-powerful. God can, God can and will protect and provide for and save people who, are, who truly worship Him, who, who honor Him, who, who worship Jesus Christ as, as Savior. Um, but there, to, in my mind, I can conclude by saying there's three big panoramic events. One is there's going to be conflict between the Islamic uh, nations and, and, and among the Arabs and so forth. It's not a homogenous group. It's 22 nations, but it's, it's not homogenous. So, see an increase in that, wars and rumors of wars. But you're then going to see a coalescing, and there's going to be a conflict between the Arab world and, uh, and a Christian European power, a German-led Europe, and we're going to see that. That's the second big phase, if I'm going to overly simplify. And all that leads up to the day of the Lord, the, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. Sobering, scary times. When will this all occur? We don't set dates, but the Bible says this will occur. It's going to occur. We should be hopeful because these events precede the return of Christ. Mm. These wars and all of these things picture an underlying conflict that's been going on for the last 6,000 years or so. This is Satan's kingdom. Christ said that Satan's kingdom fills the whole world right now. It's his kingdom. We could say that it's Satan's mountain that is in the whole world. He's going to spend the whole thing to try to sit in that holy place and to uh, fight Christ when he comes. He knows at that point that his time is short. But Satan is going down. He's going down, and his entire kingdom is going down. But Christ isn't coming to reform this kingdom. He's coming to destroy and to replace it. And we can look forward to that. Christ's holy mountain will fill the whole earth. Gentlemen, thank you. We've enjoyed the discussion today. You brought up some very important points, things that we really need to consider. The Middle East has been a religious and a military powder keg for a long time, for millennia. And as we watch, tempers continue to heat up. The Arabs, the Jews, and even the Catholic Church have their sights set on the holy city of Jerusalem. We do not know when, but Bible prophecy makes it very clear that war is coming to the Middle East. Eventually, a war engaged in by all nations, as we've discussed today. But the encouraging news is that that war will be relatively short-lived, 
as Jesus Christ returns to the earth and finally makes Jerusalem, the city of peace, his earthly capital. From his return forward, Jerusalem will see and experience true and lasting peace, and Jerusalem will be a city open for all nations. For more insights into this compelling topic, be sure to read our booklet, The Middle East in Prophecy. I'll show you a copy of it here. This booklet is full of facts and scriptures that will make you make you a far greater expert on the Middle East. And it's available for download or order on our tomorrowsworld.org website. For more encouraging news about the future, visit our tomorrowsworld.org website and stay tuned to TW Now each week. Next week, we plan to answer the question, is world peace possible?